Welcome to Earth News Interviews, the podcast where we sit down with the experts and discuss the biggest questions and discoveries in the Earth Sciences today. Earth News Interviews is brought to you by the Department of Earth Sciences at U of T. Hello and welcome back to Earth News Interviews. My name is Sophia and I'm joined by my co-host Dean. Hello, Sophia. And today we are joined by our guest, Assistant Professor Paul Ashwell, who is a professor at UTM, and he teaches Earth Science. So welcome to Earth News Interviews, Paul. Hi, thanks for having me. Glad to have you on. Uh, So, Paul, we actually, Dean and I know you from a field course that we took last year. It's an introductory mapping course. And... uh, I kind of wanted to ask you, what was like a standout moment for you during the field course? Uh, I mean, for me, that field course came after my like first uh, full year of teaching. And um, I was just so keen to get out in the field after being stuck inside my first Canadian winter. And so just to get out and just to just, just see those rocks as well. A lot of those rocks, I'd, from my background, I'd really never had much time to look at really, really old rocks. New Zealand is really, really young, right, you know, where I was teaching beforehand. And so just to see some of these old rocks and then just to spend that week uh, hiking around that field area, uh, trying to see bears uh, in the field uh, as well was also pretty old. Not that we actually did actually see any bears in the field, but Jessica did. Yeah, there was that one bear, but I don't, nobody actually, I don't think anyone actually saw the bear, but we just no one, heard him. No one saw it, and I did happen to find myself in the area shortly after uh, that rumor had come round, and I didn't see anything. So who knows? Maybe there was, maybe there wasn't. We, we, I mean, we did see a bear in the car, uh, me and the TAs. Uh, we were driving back from dinner uh, in the, the nearby town, and we did see a bear one evening, but it wasn't in the field area. It was a, it was a really fun uh, field course, actually. And I, and I actually really remember vividly both you and Professor Shu having – like big smiles on your face as you're as you're walking with speed to like the next like location of where we'd be going and be like so excited to get there so excited to to show off some some new rock or some some new formation and it was just yeah I love the exuberance of being in the field yeah I I am guilty of almost treating field trips like that as as holidays in a way because well when I go away on holiday that's kind of what I do anyway is just look at these sweet rocks only then you guys are almost duty bound to have to listen to me talk about these rocks whereas if i'm with friends they're just like uh, shut up do you have (laughs) a certain like teaching philosophy because we know that you're a teaching stream professor so what's your approach um so in my like teaching experience i've got a few years under my belt now it i mostly go down the road of trying to break this uh very um very typical of earth science, especially with what I would call the old school group of professors, which is, I was taught this way, so I'm going to teach you this way. And it's uh, it's not really the most effective way to teach, and I really want to break that cycle and start uh, sort of focusing on core skills that uh, you as undergraduate students would need to learn for employment or for research, rather than, uh, you know, memorizing all of this information about crystal systems and all of this stuff, which I had to do in my undergrad, and I have never once used it since. So I'm always trying to bring it back towards that skill focus and and really bringing that out. But also just to be um, bringing earth science uh, into a more broad audience, because um, 
in the UK, in New Zealand, and from what I've heard in Canada as well, earth science is just not taught at high school. So we get students into university who have had no experience with earth science. They know science as biology, chemistry, and physics. That's all they know. And so to really bring earth science in to actually be like, well, it's, you know, it's its own thing, but it also uses all of them. And it's, you know, it affects almost every aspect of our lives, even if you don't think about it, it does. Um, and to bring that into like a new audience and to try and just make it exciting. So do you think that earth sciences should be taught, you know, from the get-go in high school as a standalone subject like chemistry, physics, and biology? I mean, yeah, I'd love, it. I'd love that to be the case. I mean, I think what we really need to focus on more of that is actually just being able to, uh, you know, get in touch with high school uh, science teachers. They probably weren't taught any earth science either, either in their university or in their teacher training. And actually just to get in touch with them and say, hey, earth science is not, a, it's not a, a terrifying science. You know, you might not have been taught it, but it's not terrifying. It's also, you know, you probably been given really boring earth science stuff to teach, right? Here's the three types of rocks, igneous, metamorphic, sedimentary. Well, that's kind of boring, right? But there's mm -hmm. so many aspects of earth science that you can teach in high school that students would be so interested and excited about. You know, you can talk about climate change. You can talk about volcanoes and earthquakes and stuff like that. And it's probably... Rather than you know pushing to get earth science taught as a separate subject, it's just to say to, to science teachers, here's how you can teach earth science within physics. You know, you can talk about geophysics within chemistry, talk about the chemistry of rocks, uh, and within biology, talking about evolution and the history of life on Earth, and giving them the tools and the resources to be able to teach that effectively and in an, an exciting manner. I was actually lucky enough to have an earth science course in high school. And I remember it had a lot, it had more hands-on uh, activities than any other science course. We would have a tilted long plank with sand on it with water dribbling down to show you like how a meandering river forms and things like that. And, and those things like really stick out. And I can't think of like other things sticking out in like, say, my biology class. So it, it was, it, it has a lot of potential, I think, for, for education, um, for science enthusiasm as well. But I, I wonder, Paul, what? What is it that got you interested in the earth sciences or, or volcanology in particular, if you'd like? Uh, so I did my undergrad in the UK, it's where I'm from. And so the, the UK system is a bit different to what uh, you guys in Canada or the US uh, have, in which you choose your program before you even start university. So you kind of sign up with a program in mind, and then you just do courses within that program. And there's very little space to go elsewhere. So what you do is you have a list of the programs you want to go into and you kind of whittle that list down to one or two choices and then you just choose one of them to go through. And when I was choosing them, I didn't have a single goal in mind. I just knew I wanted to do science. I loved science in high school, but I loved kind of all sciences. So this list of mine had earth science, had geology as one of them because as a kid, you know, I liked visiting mines and caves and collecting fossils and gems and that sort of stuff. But it also had like biochemistry, it had like um, astrophysics, it had botany. And basically it came down to me picking a program out of a hat, pretty much, right? I had this list of programs that I would have been happy probably doing any of them. I had some universities of mine I wanted to go to and I just kind of picked it out of a hat and was like earth science at uh, the University of Portsmouth, which is where I went. And I was like, yeah, cool, that sounds, that sounds good. I'll, I'll give that a go. Very, uh, I guess, very non- focused start to my earth science career. I didn't really, 
know I was going to be a scientist. And it wasn't until I'd really got stuck into the course. And it actually wasn't until my first field trip, which was at the end of my first year, we went to central Spain for our first field trip. I remember being there and it was a completely new uh, experience for me and going away in that sense and having this uh, experience. And then I realized like halfway through, like, oh, I'm actually, I'm actually pretty good at this. This is actually quite a lot of fun. I'm enjoying myself there. And then after that, every following uh, field course that I took, it just kind of cemented this idea that no, this is this is for me. And at the end of my uh, end of my undergrads, uh, this was like for me, this was uh, 2008, and so this was like the last big recession to come through. So it was really hard to get a job coming out of undergrad. So I thought, oh, I'll go back in and I'll I'll try a postgrad degree. And I'd done well enough in UK that I could actually skip a master's and go straight to a PhD if I wanted to, which is what I chose to do. And I really wanted to go to New Zealand and check New Zealand out. So I just emailed some people down there, got in touch with one of my supervisors, and he was super enthusiastic about it. And he was like, yeah, we'll figure something out. And we, we came up with a project. And then I got out there into New Zealand and kind of changed that project quite significantly. And then I met my other supervisor, Ben Kennedy, and he suggested, hey, do you want to look at lava domes and look at volcanology? And I was like, yeah, yes, I do. I'd love to do that. And from there, then I built my PhD and built my research around that. So again, it was a very much of a fortuitous chance uh, event and a couple of good emails here and there that uh, enabled me to um, to sort of get where I am. There's something about volcanoes in particular that have uh, made them a staple in earth science and also just human history. They've, they've really captured the human imagination over the eons. The, the Greeks thought that they contained giant fiery beasts or giant blacksmith forges used by the god Hephaestus. Uh, they've been a part of our myths and omens and prophecies, in large part to their immense size, destructive power, and unpredictability. And we've come a long way with much further to go regarding predicting volcanic eruptions. But we hope today's paper can shed a little bit more light on that progress. So, Sophia, would you like to uh, get into today's... Yes, thank you, Dean. That was an awesome intro. I was personally a huge fan of, like, Greek mythology when I was a kid, so... And still now, so it's really good. Same. Way to start. But, uh, yeah, so today's paper comes from Nature.com, and uh, it's written by journalist Jane Palmer, who really did an amazing summary of all the efforts that are being made by volcanologists to monitor the world's potentially dangerous volcanoes. And uh, the article starts off by describing the sequence of events that led to the infamous eruption of Krakatau in Indonesia, which caused a really destructive tsunami. And uh, according to the satellite data that was looked at post-tsunami, early in 2018, the southwest flank, I believe, of the volcano began sliding down at a rate of a couple millimeters a month. So this wasn't really looked at or really noticed, but this was actually one of the earliest signs. And about a month after, um, it started to kind of cascade and start to move up to one centimeter a month. So it, it, the speed increased. But I was wondering, Paul, if you could tell us, are small landslides like this typically the first indicators of a possible eruption? Or is there an even earlier sign before that? Um, yeah, it's certainly a, a really early sign that a lot of uh, monitoring uh, seeks to sort of to, to see if that process is happening in a volcano. It's probably better to uh, to imagine this process less as uh, a landslide, but more as just the ground deforming. So we we just call it ground deformation as a as a broad 
a term for the whole thing. And it happens when uh, magma is starting to rise up in the volcano. And as it does so, it starts to force uh, the volcano around it and above it out. And the rates we're talking about here are, are usually millimeters or centimeters uh, per month. It can get a lot quicker than that, but you're talking about you know, amounts that if you were standing there, there's no way that you would be able to detect that. And we, the only way that we can really detect that is with uh, GPS uh, and satellite measurements. Um, so it is a, a very common feature uh, at um, volcanoes. Could there be things that there uh, happen earlier than that? Absolutely. So you can get all sorts of other things. You can get changes in uh, the amount of gases, the types of gases that are being left up. You might get uh, volcanic tremors uh, coming through. But all of these three things are all linked, and that is the link to the magma, which at one stage was uh, deeper in the volcano and relatively stable, and now it has started to move upwards. It is now uh, in a, a state of flux in the volcano. Right. And so you mentioned that there's a bunch of other earlier signs, and that actually happened at the Mount St. Helens eruption in 1980, where there was a series of small seismic events uh, prior to the eruption. So I was wondering, how do volcanoes actually trigger earthquakes like this? Yeah, there's a few different ways uh, that, that the earthquakes can be um, created in a, in a volcano. They're all, again, all related to the magma that's moving. So when the magma's moving, it is, uh, you know, it is a, a very viscous uh, liquid it's not in the same liquid as you think when you're, you've got a glass of water or anything like this, because it is a liquid that is on the verge of becoming a solid. It is so viscous and it contains a lot of crystals. It's so thick that if you put enough force on that magma, you might actually turn it into a solid. And that's what's, what's happening. As the magma is moving up in the volcano, it is being put under pressure. It is also forcing rocks around it apart and it's fracturing rocks around it. But it itself, even though it is technically a liquid, it is also cracking and fracturing as these different forces play out on the magma. It's a really weird scenario. Um, in physics, I think it's called non-Newtonian fluids. Um, if you've ever played with putty and you know you can kind of stretch it apart if you pull very slowly, but if you pull very quick, it snaps. It's that same thing with magma. So think of magma more as like a putty. And so all of these um, features, the, the cracking of the rocks as the magma forces its way up in the volcano, as well as the magma itself as it cracks and fractures and as it moves, all of those tiny little breaks and fractures creates a tiny pulse of energy. And that pulse of energy, it's like a shockwave, that is the, the earthquake that we would detect. For the most part, these earthquakes around volcanoes are incredibly small. And even if you were right there on the volcano, you probably wouldn't detect them at all. But they can get quite big uh, and they can get to the stage where, you know, you might have a magnitude three or four, even a magnitude five earthquake, which is very strong. If you're there, you would definitely feel that. But uh, generally in the run up to an eruption, you would have perhaps hundreds or thousands of these uh, volcanic tremor events. And the vast majority of them would be so small that you wouldn't feel them unless you had yeah, right, there to detect. So again, it, seem, it seems like we're kind of adding on to the the indicators that if you're there on the spot, just, I don't know, you're a tourist or you're a hiker, you're not really going to sense that something's happening. But again, it's something that needs to be monitored by 
one of these seismic stations, for instance. And then there seems to be, there's another indicator that shows up and that's being monitored at a lot of these active volcanoes and that's gas emissions. And that's another thing that if you're standing there, you're not really going to sense that there's an increase in, in certain gases. And I wonder if you could tell us what those gas emissions are and how they're different when a volcano is about to erupt. Yeah. So, um, Whenever you're in an active volcanic area, there's a lot of gases coming out of the ground in almost anywhere that you look that are coming either directly from the magma at depth or as an interaction of the magma with, say, the rocks or the groundwater in that area. The main gases that are looked at in volcanic areas are carbon dioxide. Uh, you'd also have sulfur dioxide, hydrogen sulfide, and there's, well, there's others in there as well, but they're less important, the three main ones being uh, carbon dioxide, sulfur dioxide, and hydrogen sulfide. Now, when you have a volcano that's just kind of sitting there, and if it's an active volcano, chances are there is some sort of plume coming out from the top of that volcano. Maybe there's a crater lake up the top there, and there's a, a little white plume that comes off the volcano. Now, that plume is actually, the majority of that plume is actually water vapor. And that's the majority of the gases that are released by magma, just water. A, a smaller amount than the carbon dioxide and the, the sulfur uh, dioxide, so hydrogen sulfur that I mentioned. And when magma starts to move up in a volcano, the release of those gases uh, will start to increase because the magma at depth, it might be giving off some gases, but it's kind of stable. And as it moves upwards, the pressure that's keeping those gases in the magma starts to uh, decrease and it starts to give off more gases. So think of, you know, you're opening a bottle of pop or a can of Coke or something. As you open it, you release the pressure on the liquid and the gases come out of the liquid. And it's the same with magma. Now, what's, um, what's useful about things like carbon dioxide is that carbon dioxide is relatively insoluble in water. And so the carbon dioxide, as it is released, it comes out of the volcano pretty rapidly. So when we detect a an increase in the amount of carbon dioxide coming out of a volcano, it's usually a good sign that there's been a change in the system, uh, the magmatic system below the volcano, which is often due to magma either rising up or degassing uh, more than it has done normally. It's a sign of unrest in the volcano. And it's probably easier to detect carbon dioxide too because it's it exists in such trace uh, amounts in the atmosphere. So to, to see like new inputs into that is probably easier, right? Yeah, um, well, g gases in general are, are actually, when you compare them to uh, ground deformation or volcanic tremor, gases are actually really difficult to monitor because with the other two, you can just put something on the ground and it doesn't matter where you put it. If the impact is happening on that ground, then you're going to detect it, right? You put a bunch of seismometers around a volcano, you're going to detect the tremor. You put a bunch of GPS on the side of a volcano that's moving, you're going to detect it. But with the gases that come out, if you're... If the gases are coming out of one place on the volcano and you don't have your monitoring system there, you're going to miss it. So what is most often done um, is that you either go in and a person will go in and will look at maybe the crater lake and actually see what gases are dissolved in the crater in the water that's coming off there. Or they'll actually fly through the plume and they'll have a, either a drone. Drones are much more common nowadays because they're much cheaper. Or you get a plane and you fly through the plume and you try and collect the gas where you try and work out how the composition of the plume is changing over time. Mm -hmm. So it is, it's more difficult to, to use gas because it's harder to have a you know, constant monitoring effort on the volcano to continuously monitor that gas. It, it can still be done, but it's much um, more expensive 
uh, more laborious than you can do with, say, you know, size monitors or anything like that. But it is one of the probably most useful monitoring things that we have because the changes that occur uh, in the gases often occur very, very quickly. So would you say that out of the three kind of indicators that we talked about, gas emissions are the most reliable? Unfortunately, none of them are 100% reliable. This is why, you know, we as volcanologists cannot predict when a volcano is going to erupt because uh, all we can say is that something is changing in the volcano. The, the, the trouble behind this is that when magma is rising up in a volcano and is producing volcanic tremors and is uh, creating ground deformation and giving off gases, it might not actually lead to an eruption. That magma might rise up in the volcano, stall in the volcano and cool off and crystallize and that's it. So these three things that we monitor, none of them on their own says 100% of volcanic eruption is going to occur. Mm -hmm. You need to look at all three of them because the gases tell you, well, magma is changing. We're, we're seeing changes in the gases. The seismics can tell you where that magma might be because you can actually sort of pinpoint in a three-dimensional uh, way where those earthquakes are occurring. And the ground deformation can kind of tell you how the overarching rocks are behaving on that one. Each one of those individually is not that useful without the full data set of V3. And I think that what needs to be really appreciated is the fact that, like you said, it's not, volcanologists aren't 100% able to predict when the eruption is going to happen. And that leads to a lot of problems and consideration for evacuations, for instance. There's a lot that has to go into it. There's a lot of responsibility that volcanologists and then for example, like municipal governments have in terms of, you know, when to evacuate and when the right time is. And then if it ends up being a false alarm, I mean, you've displaced a, a bunch of people and that comes with its own problems. If we're going to like fully appreciate the amount of effort that has been uh, that has been dedicated to volcano monitoring, I think it's just, we have to go back 40 years ago, again, monitoring Mount St. Helens. And Dean and I were talking about this, that there was a team of scientists that physically went up the, the slope of the volcano and just measured the, the bulge that was forming on the side of the volcano. And it uh, tragically led to um, a death of a, of a really, you know, famous and, and beloved uh, volcanologist. Dean, could you like remind me of uh, his name? I think it was David Johnston. Now, if we look at all the technology that's that's being used to monitor volcanoes it's it's kind of incredible and the amount of data that's being processed every second of every day i mean it's it's really appreciable and the thing is the the main point this article is trying to make is is that integrating all this data and pro and sifting through it is just impossible for all the volcanologists on on the planet so essentially volcanologists have now taken to using AI and machine learning to, to sift through and notice patterns in the data. And it's basically allowed them to really uh, optimize the monitoring that they do. But still, there is some slips that happen or technology is not 100% perfect. And I was wondering, we know of certain instances where volcanic eruptions occur without a timely forecast. Like for instance, uh, White Island in New Zealand had an eruption uh, in December of last year that was unexpected. And it was really tragic because there was tourists inside of the, of the volcano crater that ended up uh, tragically dying because of, the uh, because of the eruption. And I was wondering if, Paul, you could kind of explain to us why is it so difficult to monitor volcanoes and eruptions? Yeah, um, it is a question that 
we are still trying to answer is how do we monitor volcanoes accurately, efficiently, quickly. Part of the problem comes with um, the relative youth of volcanology as, as a science on its own. Um, you know, go back to 1980 with the Mount St. Helens eruption, that was the probably the first eruption on Earth that volcanologists were able to measure and uh, observe from the very beginning of this unrest cycle all the way through to the eruption itself and, and of course, and it's still being monitored today. And that was you know, 1980, that wasn't that long ago, that's only 40 years ago. And before that, there were you know, heaps of people working in volcanology, but they would always be looking at the, you know, the eruption after it happened. We didn't really have much uh, data about any eruptions that were occurring itself. And since 1980, you know, 1991, we had Pinatubo erupt in the Philippines, another huge uh, volcanic eruption. Again, that was really well monitored. That's actually quite a, a success story in terms of the monitoring because we managed to avoid a huge scale loss of life. The loss of life it still happened, but it was relatively small scale. But since then, we've been able to uh, increase our data set of um, volcanic eruptions, but we still don't have a huge data set that we've been able to record from the start to the end. And you mentioned with Anak Krakatau, this uh, deformation that was observed, unfortunately it was observed after the uh, collapse of the, of the volcano and the tsunami. It was only, only noticed afterwards. And that's what we're mostly stuck on is hindsight. We are seeing things happening afterwards and we still haven't quite caught up with being able to see them before they're actually occurring. There's some, there's some really um, interesting things that are coming out at the moment. There's also um, acoustic sound, infrasound that can be uh, discovered, which we might want to chat about later, right? Because that's really, really interesting and has the potential to be very useful alongside seismic tremors and gas and ground deformation. At the moment, machine learning is one of the only ways that we're gonna be able to get through this, um, this process because yeah, now we're seeing, especially with uh, volcanoes uh, near uh, big urban centers, especially in the US, places like Rainier, um, and also in, in places like Japan, where you have big, uh, a big civilization, big population, but also a relatively developed uh, rich country. The monitoring and the amount of data that's coming in from these volcanoes is immense now. We have a huge amount of data coming in. It's far too much for humans to deal with. And so computers are already heavily involved in this system. And I know the New Zealand system is mostly uh, done through computers. And the only time that a human will actually be involved is when the triggers are, um, are, are, are tripped, right? When the signals from the volcano have gone over a certain point that the computer goes, well, this is something's happening. And then people get involved to actually sift through the data to work out what it actually means. Often that time it takes for a person to get involved is not enough time to then uh, actually give a warning out to get people out of that area because those uh, those triggers, those signals that are coming through that indicate something happening, you might only get a few minutes of warning with some types of volcanoes. So for machine learning to really work, you've got to tell the machine that these signals mean a, an eruption. And that's the point we can't, we haven't really got to yet, is we mm -hmm. don't know exactly what signals cause or, or, or show an eruption. We know those signals mean magma is moving and magma is active and the volcano is more active than normal, but we do not know what signals def definitely mean, or what uh, level of signals definitely mean that an eruption is imminent and it is going to happen. It's all to do with probability at the moment. It is more likely to happen.
And that's what we're at at the moment. So you have to have this data set to be able to tell the machines this is what it means. And that's kind of where we're building up at the moment. And to be honest, I think it's going to be a long time before we are at the stage where we can definitively say, this, we know when this volcano, or we would know if this volcano is going to erupt. And if it starts to erupt, we're going to know when it's going to stop. Mm-hmm. It's also a case that, um, you know, every volcano is its kind of its own thing. It has its own personality in a way, because there's so many different vari- variables in the volcano in terms of the composition. And the, the White Island in New Zealand is a really good example of this, because the eruption in December of uh, last year was what we call a phreatic eruption. It means that it was mostly just water, steam, that was in the eruption. So White Island is a, it's a, it's a small island. It's a big volcano, but the vast majority of the volcano is below the surface of the ocean. And so there's a lot of water that is sort of percolating through the volcano and interacting with the magma within the volcano. And most of it, most of that water is just brought back up to the surface through steam vents and things like that and is degassed in the crater or along the sides of the volcano and back into the ocean. Occasionally, though, something changes in the, in the volcano because the, the steam is interacting with the rock and it's altering the rock and it's kind of breaking down the rock. You might end up creating a seal that keeps that steam inside the volcano. And then you've got a pressure cooker and it's basically a bomb ready to go off. If the steam pressure builds up and builds up and builds up enough, if it's built up enough that it can break through that seal, then it's just going to keep going and it's going to punch its way through the surface. And that steam, as it's building up pressure, well, it doesn't really give off any signals. It doesn't, you know, it's not creating tremors. It's not itself fracturing. It's not fracturing any rocks. And the only time you're going to get a signal is when that seal is broken. Mm-hmm. And the time between that and that steam coming up to the surface where it is going to explosively decompress in a huge explosion may only be a few seconds. There was a volcano in Japan called uh, Mount Ondake, I think it was. It erupted uh, three or four years ago. There's a sort of similar um, process. Uh, There was a bunch of tourists hiking on the volcano and this eruption seemed to come out of nowhere. The signals were there, but the signals only had a, a few seconds of warning. And it's when you have to have humans involved to check things, then, well, even a few seconds of warning, not really going to be enough. Um, In the case of White Island, I mean, it might have made a difference. There are some places on the island that you could shelter. There's some sort of old concrete ruins. But to be honest, if you're, and I've been on White Island, so I I know this, if you're next to that crater lake, which is where the explosion came, even if you ran from there to the safest place, it's going to take you five minutes right because it's it's a long distance and it's it's bumpy and there's stuff in the way Mm -hmm. so you would need minutes of warning to get tourists to safety off that island and it's unlikely that in an eruption like that you're going to have minutes of warning even if you have the best most efficient uh, ai machine learning that can get a warning out instantly Mm -hmm. it probably was uh, just not enough time so in the case of wild island and an eruption like that it may be that we can never truly accurately predict when they're going to erupt just because the nature of that type of eruption it's just it's too quick right so there's those kind of like pesky volcanoes that are like the pressure cooker kind that don't give any warnings that we know how to monitor as of yet but you did mention uh something another indicator which was these infrared sounds that are 
potentially something that can be an early warning system. Would that work for this kind of volcano or is that something different? Um, I, well, so when I read the, the article that you sent around, I actually didn't know too much about it. So I had to sort of dig in a bit deeper to find uh, where these signals were coming from. And the signals, it seems, come from the same um, processes which create uh, seismic events. So it's the fracturing of the magma and it's the breaking of the rocks. But it's also from processes that don't create seismic signals, which is kind of why this infrasound could be quite useful. So when the magma is releasing extra gases that we might detect in the plume, that process of degassing will produce infrasound. That won't produce a seismic signal, and it may or may not uh, create a change in the gas uh, emissions from the volcano. But if it does create an infrasound um, emission, then we can actually detect that. And infrasound, because you know, seismic signals move through the ground, you have to have something on the ground, and they're usually quite small, so you have to have something quite close. They're also um, very sensitive. So if you've got a tiny seismic signal that you're trying to pick up, if you have your seismic sensor on the ground, it will be so sensitive that if you walked past that seismic signal, you're going to completely drown out that sensor with just the energy of your footsteps on the ground. That's how sensitive these things are. And so they're very sensitive to human activities. So things like drilling and uh, trucks driving pi will, will have an impact on seismic sensors. And they can usually clean out that noise and actually just focus on the seismics, but it can be quite noisy. Infrasound, while there are other infrasound um, emissions, so again, vehicles and planes and things like that do produce infrasounds, from the papers that I found, it seems to be that the signals that are produced by volcanoes can be detected far easier with infrasound uh, detectors than through seismic sensors. And there was one um, paper that I found that used infrasound at um, Stromboli, which is a, a volcano in Italy, and it erupts all the time. It actually erupts quite frequently, which is really useful because you can kind of monitor it and you know that it's going to erupt you know, in the next two or three hours so you can look for these signals. And they used infrasound and they were able to come up with about an hour prediction with nearly 97% accuracy. So by monitoring the infrasound, they were able to detect when these changes were occurring, which was showing that magma was coming up the volcano. And they were able with their, um, their, their model, their program, the program was able to spit out to say that we're gonna have an eruption in about an hour's time and it would be 97% accurate which is phenomenal. Now, with Stromboli, really you know, it's, it, they're always really small eruptions, so there's no danger to people. You don't have to worry about um, uh, people being there, but, you know, people still go, I've, I've been up Stromboli, I've seen it erupt, and you do still get quite close, and the, the size eruption can change, so it's still useful to have that sort of thing. If we take that and we put it on another volcano, then we can't use the exact same signals from Stromboli on other ones because they're different behaviours, but it seems to be that if you can tie in the signals at that volcano to these eruptions, then you should be able to get quite good accuracy. Now, the problem with that is that many, many volcanoes around the world, which we think of are, that are dangerous and have the potential to erupt, are pretty much silent at the moment. They might not have erupted for a few hundred years, and we might have historical records of them erupting, but otherwise they are pretty silent. So we will not get a precursor to them until the magma starts coming up. So there's this you know, broad sense of understanding about volcanic processes and the signals, as well as the fine tuning that needs to be done around volcanoes on the world. And that is a very much an ongoing process. It's 
it's going to take a long time before we're able to really accurate in doing things. So as we get more accurate at predicting these uh, catastrophic events, I wonder at what point will uh, Earth scientists be liable for failing to predict these events? Because I, I recall years ago that there were uh, Italian seismologists who were actually jailed for manslaughter. They, they were, the conviction was overturned, but they were actually jailed for manslaughter for failing to predict an earthquake. And it, this, of course, this was a big scandal to earth scientists everywhere. There's no way they should ever be held liable for failing to predict this and to warn people. But I, I, I kind of wonder what your take is on that, on either earthquakes or volcano prediction and, and the responsibility versus liability of scientists in, in alerting the public. Yeah, so the uh, the Italian earthquake, I think it was Lachia, um, a good few years ago happened. And a, a friend of mine was actually doing a PhD in Italy. And uh, I asked her about it. And I remember that she said that there's far more to that story than met or all that came through in the Western press. So it, definitely with those Italian seismologists, there was, and I can't remember exactly what happened with it, but it wasn't quite as simple as saying that the seismologist failed to predict the earthquake and they were arrested for the manslaughter and the impact of it. So... There was definitely something else going on there. I can't really comment on, on exactly what. But when you have that scenario of scientists making decision and then that decision cycling through, in almost all um, uh, evacuation events, it is never the scientist who makes the decision to evacuate. That decision is almost always made by either emergency managers, uh, civil defense, or the government of the area. So it, it is more of a bureaucratic decision than a scientific decision. The scientists are there to provide the emergency managers, the civil defense, uh, whoever, with the information that they have at hand. And scientists will say, and scientists use, often use probabilities. We think there is an X percent probability increase of uh, an eruption or whatever, earthquake, whatever, that sort of thing. Uh, that is the data that you have to work on for your announcements and they they do work very closely with these sort of things so that the data is shared adequately but it's it's pretty much never going to be the volcanologist making the decision to do a huge scale evacuation now volcanologists might be in charge of the volcano in the area so they might get the power to say okay the volcano is at unrest so we're going to stop tourists from going to the volcano that sort of thing they might cut it out there but in terms of a large-scale volcano that would require a big evacuation, it's very, very rarely going to be the scientists who are gathering the data that's making that decision. And that's that's how it should be, right? Because scientists focusing on the data and what it means, someone else should be focusing on is this a uh, requirement for an evacuation. Mm -hmm. Now, with, with evacuation stuff, and, and Sophia, you mentioned this earlier, there's a risk of getting it wrong. And people have a tendency to... Uh, look at you know false positives or false negatives far more than they do at the times that it worked, right? So in the case of a volcano, if you said to uh, people who lived around a volcano, an eruption is going to happen and you have to evacuate, and everyone evacuates, they uproot their lives for days on end, you know, maybe they have to leave pets behind, it's very stressful for them. If an eruption doesn't occur and they move back in, you can be guaranteed that those people, the next time you say an eruption is going to happen, they are not going to believe you. And you're going to have to try it much harder. So the risk of getting it wrong is incredibly high. 
So the stress on the people that have to make that decision, whether they evacuate, is immense. And I definitely would never want to be in that position to have to make that decision because it is incredibly stressful and there's a lot of pressure involved in there, not just to potentially save people's lives, but also going down the line to make sure those people still trust you and your decisions and your data uh, further on down the line. It's like the boy who cried wolf. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, totally. And there's many, many examples of that happening and people not going, not leaving and being killed. And plenty of times where evacuations have been done and people have left and nothing's happened. And, and we, it's not a perfect system at all, but yeah, that's all we've got. So it seems as though like public trust is a very important thing that must be considered in, in terms of these like evacuation protocols and, and volcanoes just working alongside governments. Uh, but I wonder if... Hollywood has kind of thrown a wrench. I know this is kind of a segue, but if Hollywood's thrown a wrench in in this public trust, because I mean, there's been a lot of these movie portrayals of volcanic eruptions, like Dante's Peak is one that uh, Melissa, who we've had on an episode before, shows uh, shows our class, and there's clearly some very very big misconceptions that people have about volcanic eruptions because of these movies. For instance, I think there was like a moment in the film where like a nearby lake had like a really low pH that corroded like a like a uh, motor of a boat. So, I mean, do you think that these, <laughs> yeah, it was, it, I mean, the entire movie, I don't know if you've, have you seen it, Paul, by the way? Oh yeah, I've seen it many times. Okay. <laughs> oh, you love oh, it. I, love it. It's, I think it's great. <laughs> okay, well, maybe, maybe this question wasn't going to go how I thought it was going to go. But uh, do you think that this, in a sense, is, is fear mongering? And is this this harmful to the public? To it's yeah, it's a great question. It's definitely something that I've I've thought about a lot. I'd love to see if there's any sort of more on the like the psychology side of um, research to see if what people's perceptions are after they've seen a disaster movie. Do they fear that disaster more? How is their perception of that the disaster process? Um, I mean, Dante's Peak, I, I, yeah, I love it. I actually think Dante's Peak is actually quite accurate, considering it's a Hollywood movie. And anytime anyone wants to think of a volcanologist and they immediately think of Pierce Brosnan, I'm really happy with that. In terms of like the, the way that they, in Dante's Peak, have actually um, shown the process of monitoring a volcano and the kind of the ramping up of the behavior of the volcano, is actually pretty good. It's practically accurate. The one scene that is kind of ridiculous is the one that you talk about, where they're trying to get across the lake that suddenly becomes super, super acidic, and the boat starts to melt into the lake, and then the grandma gets out of the boat, and she ends up dying or something like that. Spoiler alert. Um, Spoiler alert. But that, that is ridiculous, right? Acid lakes on volcanoes can get incredibly acidic. Some can get down to a pH of 0.1. Which is incredibly acidic, more acidic than you know, like the, the battery acid in your car. But if you pull an aluminium boat across that lake, you're going to have to leave that boat in the lake for you know days or weeks before it starts to get etched. And if you jumped out of a boat into that lake, you're probably going to end up with some pretty nasty chemical burns. But you're not going to die from it, right? If you got out of that lake and just washed that that uh, that acid off your legs, you'd probably just be fine with like a really nasty sort of sunburn, right? You might need to go to hospital. But you're not going to be that bad. Mm -hmm. Every other aspect of that film is actually I think, pretty good. The way that they show the lahar and the way that they show the pyroclastic flow, I thought was actually really quite good. I think they showed the kind of, they showed the, the houses sort of explode rather mm -hmm. than just get flat. They're 
overall, I thought that was actually quite good. But you compare that to um, another Volcano film, which I think was released in the same year, just called Volcano, which had Tommy Lee Jones in it. And that was a volcano that occurred in the middle of downtown LA, right? Which, if you've taken a first-year geology course in your life, you'll know that the plate boundary that runs kind of through LA is not capable of forming volcanoes. It just mm-hmm. isn't. It will not be a volcano in LA, right? It just doesn't happen. So I'm kind of interested, when that film came out, were the people who lived in LA, were they, you know, they've got to be really worried about earthquakes in LA. Did they start also worrying about volcanic eruptions as well? I, I mean, it'd be interesting to see what it is. So films have the potential to be incredibly misleading with these disasters. And to be honest, most disaster films are kind of misleading in one way or another. And that's that Hollywood flair that they've put into it. They have to make it somehow more exciting. And I think San Andreas, the, the earthquake film with, um, with Rock, right? I think he's in it. It's, it's like turning the earthquake notch up to 11 and trying to get the maximum amount of drama. But it's like, you don't need to do that. It's, it's a disaster film. Mm-hmm. And there's a really good film called The Wave. I don't know whether you guys have seen it. It's a Norwegian film. No, we haven't. And it's, it's, yeah. it's really, really good. I highly recommend it. It's just set in a, in a small fjord in Norway where basically there's a big slab of rock that's kind of at risk from falling into the fjord and creating a huge tidal wave. And the whole film is just set in this fjord with you know a small community of people and, and it's brilliant. It's really well done, it's suspenseful, um, and, and I think it's actually quite accurate. I don't know too much about monitoring of, of landslides and that sort of thing, but I think there's a couple of things they probably play a bit loose with the science on, but otherwise it's pretty good. However, uh, the same director on that then uh, did a sequel to that called The Quake, and that's set in Oslo. Like Oslo is kind of, well, it's incredibly secure geology, right? That's not to say it will never have an earthquake, but it will never have like a magnitude eight earthquake that kind of destroys the entire city. So mm-hmm. like one film was really good and the sequel then was, well, yeah, it was kind of terrible. Decided to use a little bit more of his uh, artistic liberty there. Very much so. So they, they have the potential to be accurate, but also exciting and interesting to watch and probably educational for the people that live in those areas, right? If mm-hmm. you lived in a Norwegian fjord and you saw the wave, you would probably think about what you would do in that same scenario. And you might come up with a plan. And that's really what is the most important thing is to have a plan. But then if you lived in Oslo and you saw the quake and you suddenly go, shit, I'm not going to worry about earthquakes now. But of course, people don't have to do that. So it's, it's very uh, risky uh, that the, the public put their trust in a film that is really inaccurate. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, you know, education uh, comes in really important here. If you live in a place where you have a significant uh, geological hazards, be it earthquakes, volcanoes, tsunamis, landslides, it's super important to just find out what the danger is and to then have a plan. You don't have to do anything about, apart from that, just to just find out what the risk is and find out a plan. You know, what are you going to do in that scenario? Right? If you live in Vancouver, what are you going to do if an earthquake strikes? If you live in um, Portland, Oregon, uh, Washington. What are you going to do if a volcano erupts? That sort of thing. We're fortunate here that we actually don't have to worry about anything like that because we have really no geological hazards in Ontario, in Toronto. Um, so that's quite nice. But if you do live in a place that you do know you've got that hazard, you need to find out about it. And Hollywood is not the place to go looking for that. I want to uh, talk about 
some really, really big volcanoes. And bigger than the ones here on Earth, we have Olympus Mons on Mars, which is about two and a half times Mount Everest's height above sea level. One of the largest volcanoes in the solar system, tallest planetary mountain. Um, and its kind of neighbor, Alba Mons, which is northeast of Olympus Mons, has roughly 19 times the surface area of Olympus Mons. So these, these Martian volcanoes really interest me because I, I think from what I learned in class, basically the, the tectonic plates had stopped moving, but the magma bodies underneath these volcanoes just kept churning out magma. Kind of like how, like if you were to stack all of Hawaii, just it, without Hawaii moving, it would just kept coming out instead of starting a new island. If you just kept going up higher and higher and higher without any movement of the plate, you'd get something like that. Um, I don't know. What do you think of these, uh, the Martian, Martian uh, volcanoes and, and are they, are they dead now? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know too much about uh, Martian volcanoes to be honest, but yeah, they, they are very, very dead. Now Mars as a place is generally thought to be geologically dead. There might be a little bit of activity still there. I think they have detected um, Mars quakes, I guess, earthquakes on Mars, Mar Martian quakes. So there is a little bit going on there. But um, the process of plate tectonics on Mars, it, uh, it probably started about the same time that Earth did, which is very early on in Earth's history, but it's, it also didn't last for very long. So Mars has probably been geologically dead for maybe a billion plus years, so a very, very long time. Mm. And as you said, the Olympus Mons, because plate tectonics kind of shut off and didn't change, you just had this huge outpouring of magma. And we get that quite often on Earth, but the difference on Earth is because the plates are moving so fast comparatively with geological time, that that amount of material is kind of spread around the place. So the style of the, the eruption is basically in uh, Mars's core, there was a, a bit of the, the, the mantle of Mars, which is kind of like one layer within the Earth and uh, within Mars, would have been incredibly hot and hot enough to melt it. And it would have risen up towards the kind of the surface of Mars underneath the crust, the very outer edge, and it basically sat there and it was able to, to tunnel through and just erupt out of uh, Olympus Mons. And it created a volcano, while it's much, much bigger than anything on Earth, the shape and the style of the volcano is almost exactly the same as we see with uh, Hawaii. And because Hawaii is basically formed through the exact same process, this blob of Earth's mantle, which was much, much hotter, was formed down by the core of Earth, and it rose up slowly because it's more buoyant, it's hotter, and as it got closer to the surface of Earth, again, the pressure was reduced. It didn't have nearly as much stuff pushing down on it. And it was really, really hot and it was able to melt. And that was the magma that forms Hawaii. And as you mentioned, Dean, the Pacific plate is moving. So most of the material that's forming Hawaii is actually being dragged away from that, almost like that, that spot, that, uh, that burning hot, uh, hot spot that's allowing it. But if it was there, then yeah, maybe on Earth, if plectotonics stop, then we'd end up with similar size volcanoes as as Mount Mount, as Olympus um, Mons. Yeah. Uh, so Paul, I mean, bringing us back to Earth a little bit, you've done some research on individual processes that cause volcanic eruptions and collapse events. Can you shed some light on some of these processes and some of the re research that you've done? Yeah, sure. I mean, Earth is definitely where my comfort zone is, so happy to come back here. Um, <laughs> the volcanoes that I studied uh, in New Zealand for my PhD uh, were Again, very different type of volcano than we've talked about already, um, and that is called a lava dome. And, or you can think of a lava dome as basically 
at the end of a really, really big explosive eruption where almost all of the energy has been thrown out of the volcano, a huge explosive eruption, there's this kind of like, yes, dribble of lava that's left. It's lost most of its gases. It's lost most of its energy. And it's like squeezing toothpaste out of a tube. It just kind of piles up at the surface there. But it's still lava. It's still hot. It still has gases. And it still has the potential to be quite dangerous. And the, uh, the, the thing, the danger with a lava dome is that the explosive eruption may last uh, days, maybe even weeks in time, and then it's kind of expended all its energy. But then this lava dome that's coming up may keep extruding and changing for years afterwards. And so it maintains this hazard for a lot longer than these bigger eruptions, even if uh, you know the scale of it is not quite as big. And so my research was looking at uh, one of these lava domes and seeing if we could work out you know, how it erupted, when it, when it erupted, and the style it erupted. And when I was doing that, I started finding these uh, these textures on the on the surface of the dome, which sort of seems to suggest that part of the dome had collapsed, and then the rest of the dome behind it kind of puffed up to replace this sort of material that had been lost. And you can kind of think of that like popcorn, right? When you heat popcorn enough, it kind of pops and bursts open and kind of does this. And that's what we thought the lava dome was kind of doing. It was like inflating and bursting and, and kind of puffing up. And that was showing that part of this lava dome was collapsing and it was, would have created basically a pyroclastic flow, a big landslide of hot volcanic material. But the way that this texture was, uh, was being shown on the volcano seemed to suggest that this event was occurring after this dome had completely formed and completely stopped. So this dome would have been continuously growing and bits would have been coming out. And then eventually it would have just sort of stopped and it would have started to cool down and solidify. And as it does so, it turns from a lava, uh, you know, uh, mostly molten, but very, very thick, viscous liquid into first a glass, which you know, would have been very similar to sort of glasses we drink of. And eventually it would have started crystallizing into more of a crystalline rock. And that process of crystallization and solidification would have changed the rock properties, how strong it was. So if you have this big pile of material sitting on top of your volcano, it's very steep and gravity is gonna to wanna to pull it down and it's gonna want it to bring it back into a nice uh, stable you know, 45 odd degree slope, which is about the stability slope. It's much, much, you know, in some places it's almost 90 degrees. And so we are seeing these events happening and we were seeing that they were happening after the lava dome was formed. And so the question that I sort of left off with my PhD, and I haven't done much else on it yet, but it was, well, how do we detect? How do we determine at what point this cooling, solidifying, crystallizing mass, this, how does the strength of that material change? And can you say, well, it's been cooling and crystallizing and solidifying for X amount of time, and it's undergone these changes, it is now much more likely to collapse, or is it much less likely to collapse once it's cooled enough? And when that collapse occurs, it will again, it will, it will occur pretty much without warning because it's a gravitational collapse. And it will basically be once that strength threshold has been passed, the whole thing will fall off. Mm -hmm. And there will be no uh, warning of that one. And because there's no warning, you can't let people go anywhere near that volcano for years afterwards. So if we understand the process better, we can you know, use... Um, we can go down and we can look at chunks of that volcano and see what the process is going. And maybe we can understand that given enough time, the 
dome will either be safe or it will be even more dangerous. And you can kind of use that information to then help plan what you would do in a similar eruption. Right. Do you have a favorite volcano? I mean, oh, that's a great question. Do I have a favorite volcano? I have uh, the volcanoes that I've visited and I've seen erupt or will always have a very special place in my heart uh, because that experience is like nothing you will ever experience again. It is phenomenal. So I've I've seen a few volcanoes erupt and they will always have a very special place. Um, but I don't I don't want to say I have a favorite one because I think that's just plain favorites and I, I couldn't choose. And I mean, we, we always kind of ask these questions at the end, but I think you might have hinted at it uh, when you were explaining what your research for your PhD was. But is that like the, the scientific mystery that you would like to solve or is there another one that you would like to? I, yeah, I had, a, I, uh, I had to really think about this question. And I started thinking about like quantum mechanics and all this sort of stuff, the stuff I don't know anything about. There are a huge amount of mysteries that I know a tiny amount about, but I'd love to, to, to find out the answer to. I don't think I'd actually have anything to do with volcanology. I think I don't want to solve anything with volcanology because I enjoy the kind of the learning about it. And I think the one I came up with was, was actually more about human evolution. It was exactly where have we come from? How do we as a species link to the species that we see in the fossil record, right? Um, you go back about two, 300,000 years ago and our species only just starts to appear in the fossil record. And at the same time, in other parts of the world, there are maybe three or four, or maybe even more, other hominid species, other species of human-like organisms that weren't human. And that kind of blows my mind. We always think of ourselves as the one and only hominid species, the human species. And we think of ourselves as, as being completely there at all times and there's been nothing else but us. But actually, no, that's not true at all. And so to, to be able to find out what that the exact links between us and all of the other hominid species and how we evolved from them and, and what part of what uh, species led to us, mm-hmm. I think that would be a uh, fascinating mystery. And there's a link there as well to the eruption of Toba, which is a volcano that, we, that almost led to our extinction as a species. So it'd be good to also find out more about that. I sometimes wonder like who how how we would be toward these other species if like if neanderthals were still alive today would we be really horrible to them would we like would they're so close to us yeah. right would we would they be members of society would we be really bigoted toward them like and, and just all kinds of other denusovans and the right. the other ones well we we share the dna so we do have the dna of neanderthals and possibly other right. hominid species within our own genome so we definitely have some links to them and if you, you know, got, if you managed to bring a Neanderthal back, you know, went back in time, grabbed them, brought them to the present day, and if you, you know, cleaned them up and gave them a shave and put clothes on them and sent them down the high street, then I think people would be like, oh, it looks a bit weird. But that's it. They would more or less accept them as perhaps a really weird looking person. They are not so removed from us that they would be like a completely different, like how we see us and gorillas or us and chimpanzees, they would effectively look very, very similar to us. They might not sound it. There's there's evidence to say that they probably didn't have quite the same vocal range as we did, but their society may have been very similar to our the early human society. They would have or possibly had music. They possibly had some sort of religion. Uh, but the question, would we be bigoted towards them? Well, I think the answer is, well, we're bigoted enough to each other. I think that shows that if 
if they somehow managed to survive, then they probably wouldn't be doing so well in today's world. Yeah, that's some that's some food for thought. As always, we like to end our episode with a quote that also leaves us with a little bit of food for thought. So I'll hand off the the mic to Dean for for that. Okay, so this one is kind of heavy. Um, it's it's written by Pliny the Younger in a letter to Tacitus describing what happened to him and his mother during the second day of the Mount Vesuvius disaster in the year 79 AD. Ashes were already falling, not as yet very thickly. I looked round. A dense black cloud was coming up behind us, spreading over the earth like a flood. Let us leave the road while we still can, I said, or we shall be knocked down and trampled underfoot in the dark by the crowd behind us. We had scarcely sat down to rest when darkness fell. Not the dark of a moonless or cloudy night, but as if the lamp had been put out in a closed room. You could hear the shrieks of women, the wailing of infants, and the shouting of men. Some were calling their parents, others their children or their wives, trying to recognize them by their voices. People bewailed their own fate or that of their relatives. And there were some who prayed for death in their terror of dying. Many besought the aid of the gods, but still more imagined there were no gods left and that the universe was plunged into eternal darkness forevermore. It really, I think I really like this because it really kind of puts you into, into our relationship with, with volcanoes um, and how, what our relationship has traditionally been throughout most of our existence and probably still is today for in a lot of places. Yeah, I mean, we don't really understand volcanoes yet. And the power that even a small eruption has, when you are there and you can see it, is phenomenal. And it, it, it's, it's so grounding to be there and to feel the power of nature, which is so much more than, than you are. And then to be present at an eruption like that, where you don't have the knowledge of what it is and what's causing it, and to just have this uh, experience that you've never experienced before in your life, where it feels like the universe is ending. Everything that you know is going to end. I can't imagine the terror that those people in uh, Pompeii or Herculaneum would have felt at the eruption uh, that, was, that happens to them, it happened very quickly. All these eruptions happened and now at least we have the scientific capability to monitor and potentially save thousands and, and millions of lives. Um, and yeah, I think that's that's a good way to end the episode. Paul, I want to thank you so much. You've been so generous with your time today. We went a little bit over, but it's just such an interesting discussion to have. And we're very glad to have it with you. So thanks again for coming on our show. Oh, no problem. Thanks so much for inviting me. And thank you as well to our listeners. We hope to see you tune in next week for a brand new episode of Earth News Interviews. Until then, leave no stone unturned. Earth News Interviews is brought to you by the Department of Earth Sciences at U of T. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the official policies of the university.